we're going through the whole life of Jesus and we're going across four books in the Bible that are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of the Gospels were written by disciples who lived and walked with Jesus for the three years he ministered on the earth. And the fourth gospel is written by a physician and a historian named Luke who lived around the same time and was a traveling companion of Paul who was an apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. And so today we're gonna be in the gospel of Luke. We're gonna be in Luke 18. And as we go through this text, I'm just gonna do my best to explain some things. And the reason we study the Bible like this is because we're not really interested in my ideas and my thoughts on how we should live life. We wanna hear from Jesus. We wanna hear what he said for ourselves. We wanna see it in his word because there's so many ideas out there about who Jesus is and what he was all about, but the best way to get a straight answer is to just research it for ourselves. And so that's what we're gonna do today. Last time we were in this series, Jesus was sharing with his disciples about the kinds of things that would be going on in the world in the days leading up to Jesus's return. And that led us into exploring the strange days of Noah, which we looked at last week. If you missed that, you can check that out online. This week, Jesus is going to teach on the subject of prayer. Is there anything that most of us wish we were better at than prayer? Is there anything that most of us wish we were more faithful with? than prayer. We all wish we prayed more. And so today Jesus is going to expand our understanding of whom it is that we're praying to and how we should approach him. It's going to be an encouraging message. It's not going to be Jesus saying, you guys are awful. Why don't you pray more? You're going to leave encouraged today. And so with that, let's jump in. Luke chapter 18, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them. Underline parable that, and I love the way this verse ends, underline the whole rest of verse one, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. It means not lose hope. Saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me for my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust, underline unjust, judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, underline speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth, underline faith. In our story, there's a widow. And as some of you may know, widows had practically no rights at this time in history. They couldn't hold a job. They couldn't own property. They weren't allowed to actually go to court. Your only real hope if you were a widow was finding a new husband or some family of yours or extended family who would be willing to take you in and take care of you. And the reason this judge is able to ignore her and put her off for a while is because she's a woman. She's not even supposed to be there, so he's able to say, no, no, go away, you're a woman, I'm not gonna listen to you. This judge is clearly a bad dude. How do we know? Because Jesus says he was unjust and he doesn't fear God, doesn't care about people. 
And yet he ends up helping this woman out because he doesn't want to be nagged to death. Nagged to death. And that's our great moral of the story today. There's power in nagging. That's right. No, that's not what the point is. That's not what the point is. You may have heard it taught before that what Jesus is saying here is that when, when you pray, if you can just wear God down, if, if you can just drive him crazy with your prayers, nag him to death, then your prayers will be answered. Well, the scene was Mount Carmel. Elijah, the prophet of God, who thought he was the only prophet of God left, was in a showdown with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, both pagan false gods. And Elijah says, let's settle this. Let's settle the issue of who the real God is. We'll build two altars. We'll put a dead bull on each one. Then we'll both pray. And the God who answers with fire from heaven will be shown to be the one true God. And they say, this is a good deal. The false prophets go first. They cry out to Baal for hours. All morning, the word says. They pester and persist and try to nag their God into action with no answer. Elijah is just chilling under a tree watching the spectacle unfold and he starts actually making fun of them and he says, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy. Other translations will accurately say maybe he's using the bathroom or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So Elijah's just saying, cry louder. Maybe you're not making a big enough scene here. Just wear him down. Then it says, so they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So they're running around, they're, they're doing their dance, they're cutting themselves to try and get their God's attention. They're trying to prophesy in behalf of their false God. And evening comes and still nothing, still nothing. No one answered, no one paid attention, it said. And it was Elijah's turn. And Elijah says, hey, um, let's get some water and soak my offering in water. And then he says, do it again. So it's just dripping wet with water. There's water all around the altar that he's built. And then it says that it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is a great, great story. And it's a great story because of the contrast between the theatrics and the hysterics and the nagging of the false prophets to their false god and the simple confidence and power of Elijah in his God. And that's what Jesus is doing in this parable. He's not making a comparison saying, you should be like the woman. He's making a contrast. And this is gonna be your first fill-in. Because you see, we don't come before an uncaring judge. We come before a loving father. We come before a loving father. 
People sometimes ask the question, who, who should we pray to? Which member of the Trinity should we pray to? Well, Jesus told his disciples when he taught them how to pray in Matthew 6, he said, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, our Father. And wanting us to understand the heart of our heavenly Father, Jesus taught in Matthew 7, what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, who will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is constantly trying to teach his disciples that they have a father in heaven who loves them. Well, the next contrast we see is that she went before an uncaring judge alone, but we go before a loving father through Jesus. She went before the judge alone. She had no representation, no lawyer, no attorney. But what did John the Apostle say? He said, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an attorney. And he himself is the propitiation for our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. When we go before the Father, Jesus is right next to us. A constant reminder that we're able to come to God because he's paid for our sins. And if Satan lobs any accusation saying, you've got no business being before the Father, you're a sinner, Jesus is there to say, and it's paid for. It's paid for. I am exhibit A. That's what Jesus does for us. He's our advocate. Well, the next contrast we see is that she goes before a courtroom, but we go before a throne of grace. She goes before a courtroom, but we go before a throne of grace. In Hebrews, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, present tense, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the point of the whole parable. This is what Jesus wants you and I to understand. If this widow can get help from an unjust judge who doesn't care about her or fear God, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you and cares about you, help you in your time of need? In fact, Jesus tells us back in verse one, that the purpose of this whole parable is that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. He says, I, I wanna teach you why you should pray and not lose hope. And he's saying, because you need to understand who you're praying to. You're not trying to nag a God into action. You're coming before a heavenly father who loves you. And he's trying to adjust their paradigm of who this God is that they're praying to. Because for them, the idea that you could call God, Yahweh, the one whose name they wouldn't even write out in its entirety, leaving out letters strategically because they revered him so highly. The idea that you could call that God Father, Abba, Papa, Daddy. 
was mind-blowing to them. So Jesus is trying to lead them into this paradigm shift of understanding that they have a heavenly father who loves them as sons and daughters. We should not lose heart because of who it is we're praying to and because of who we are to him. Why do we lose heart when we pray? What's the number one reason we lose hope? Wouldn't you agree that it's the feeling that nothing is happening, that the answer isn't coming, that it's not making a difference? You see, many of us believe that God can help us, but we struggle to believe that he wants to help us. We don't struggle to believe that he can, we struggle to believe that he wants to, and Jesus is telling us two parables to get our mind right on this issue and help us understand who it is that we're praying to and how much he loves us. Back in verse eight, Jesus said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Faith as it relates to everything Jesus said in the seven verses before that verse. In that last generation, before Jesus comes to rapture his church, in that generation, will Jesus find faith Will he find people who pray and actually believe that they have a heavenly father who hears them and responds when they cry out to him? Or will Jesus find a so-called group of believers who have turned prayer and faith into abstract concepts, who've intellectualized the faith, and even before the prayer is finished, they're already saying, now just remember, his ways are not our ways, so you know if it doesn't work out, You know, just be ready for that. There's a place for that, but Jesus is saying, am I gonna find any faith? Am I gonna find people who believe that their heavenly father loves them and that he really listens and he really responds? Will I find faith on the earth? You know, our actions reveal what we truly believe. That is a horrible truth, isn't it? Our actions reveal what we really believe. This woman showed up day after day and nagged this judge into action because she really believed that he had the ability to help her. If she didn't believe that, she wouldn't have shown up on the second day. But she keeps showing up again and again and again because she believes he can really help her. Jesus is trying to tell us, his disciples, the fathers, sons, and daughters, that our heavenly father is there. He's available to us with the solutions to our problem. But the question is, do we really believe that? Do our actions, the way we pray, show that we really believe that? Or if we don't get an immediate answer, do we give up and lose heart because we don't really believe God's going to respond? Make a note of this. Our Father wants our prayers to be based on believing, not begging. He wants our prayers to be based on believing, not begging. You see, when you beg, you defame the character of God. Let me explain what I mean. If my kids come to me and they're like, Dad, Dad, please, would you just give me dinner tonight? Please, 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 Dad, I'm begging you. That defames my character because it implies that there's a realistic chance I'm not going to feed my children. It's insulting to my character. Likewise, when we beg God for something, it's insulting to his character because it implies that we're not convinced he's actually gonna take care of us. 
God says, that's not how I want you to pray. I want you to pray with faith that shows you believe in my character, that you honor my character, that you believe I'm a good God. Jesus said, therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. It's a troubling verse, isn't it? Because we immediately go, I don't like the prosperity gospel thing. But this is what Jesus says. Believe and you'll have them. Well, immediately we go, well, that's not true because if I pray for a Ferrari, I'm not gonna get a Ferrari. Well, that's why the psalmist wrote, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Meaning that as you spend your life with God, the Holy Spirit will actually change the things that you want. It will change the things that you really desire and the things you desire for yourself will become the same things that God desires for you. And then you are in alignment with God and now God is able to bless and answer your prayers effectively because you're on the same page. But Jesus still says, you've got to believe. There's gotta be faith involved. There's gotta be faith involved. His delight is in answering your prayers. Jesus says, I want you to believe that. Trust in the character of your heavenly father. Well, verse nine, also he spoke this parable, underline parable, to some who trusted in themselves, underline themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A tax collector, as you may know, because Matthew, the disciple, was a tax collector, was a person who had turned their back on their own people, the Jews, and had instead taken a job working for the state of Rome, doing something which generally never endears you to your neighbors, being the place they have to go to pay their taxes, being the guy who knocks on their door and says, have you forgotten something? You owe Caesar some cash. And so it was a great paying job because they really ran their tax collecting organization as franchises in different areas and they would skim off the top all the time, all the time. All Rome cared about is that they got their money, didn't really care how the tax collector did it. So tax collectors were despised by the people and they were actually considered by the Jews as those who could not be saved because even God hated tax collectors. So these are the two characters that Jesus presents us with. One who is socially perceived as the epitome, the embodiment of righteousness, a Pharisee, a religious expert whose entire profession is living out the law to perfection. And the other character is socially perceived as the embodiment of unrighteousness. He's a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, underline the word himself. This cracks me up. He's praying with himself. Jesus is using language here to tell us, the listener, that though this man thinks he's praying to God, he's really only praying to himself, with himself. And I'm going to suggest that's because this Pharisee had something in common with some of those who were listening to this parable. Like them, he trusted in himself that he was righteous. In other words, he was confident going before God because he believed himself to be a good man because he did so much good stuff. Of course God's happy to see me. I'm amazing. But Jesus just told us, and this is heavy, Jesus just told us God's not even listening when this guy prays. 
He's not even listening. This is not how the audience would have expected this parable to go. So picture the scene here. The Pharisee is praying out loud at the temple so that everyone can hear him and admire his spirituality and check out how he prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Well, this Pharisee is a bit of a uh, word that I can't use in church. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Let's do a sidebar here. Are fasting and tithing bad things to do? Well, the answer might go a little bit deeper than you first think. Because the Bible actually teaches there is nothing that we can do, no action we can do on our own that is inherently good. None. Nothing. In fact, in Isaiah 64, we read this shocking statement, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, all our good deeds, are like filthy rags. Filthy rags. And here's why. You see, the Bible gives us the gospel. And what the gospel says is there's really only one sin that you've committed. There's really only one sin that separates each person from God. It's the fact that when we sin for the first time, we are rejecting our creator and choosing to instead be our own God. Instead of acknowledging and submitting our lives to the one true God of the universe. It's serious. It's the most serious crime in the universe. It's the issue and we're all guilty of committing this crime against the God of the universe. Now imagine how it is received by God when our response to blaspheming him, to rejecting our maker, imagine how he receives it when our response to that is, I'll make up for it by being nice to people. I'll make up for spitting in the face of God by smiling at strangers and being patient when I have to wait in line. Giving money to charity. Take it as far as you want. Even if you go all the way to, I'll go live in a third world country and serve the poor. You're still claiming that's good enough to make up for spitting in the face of God. The very thought that you would think that's good enough to make up for spitting in the face of God is an insulting thought to God because it shows what a low view we have of God when we think we can do that to him and make up for it by doing good works. It's not good enough. You can't make up for rejecting God. And so do you know what all our attempts to make up for rejecting God seem like to him? Like filthy rags, that's what he says. Filthy rags. Let me put it in more human perspective. It would be like one spouse committing adultery against the other and then trying to make up for it by bringing them coffee the next morning. If you try to make up for doing something like that with good works, how are they gonna receive it? Filthy rags, filthy rags. What's the only hope for restoring relationship? The only chance for restoring relationship? It's repentance, coming before the person and confessing, I did this, I know it was wrong, I'm so sorry for what I've done for you, I want a relationship with you, is there any way you can forgive me. That's the only chance, right? 
You're not going to fix that by doing stuff for them. It's a much deeper issue than that. You can't make up for it. It entirely depends upon them forgiving you. And the glorious news for you and I is that God has answered, yes, there is a way for you to be forgiven because I want a relationship with you too. When we trust in our own good works to save us, they're like filthy rags before the Lord. When we trust in Jesus to make us righteous, we will do good works not to save ourselves, not to make up for the sins that we have done, but because we're grateful to God for saving and forgiving us. Good works will flow out of our lives naturally, and the Lord says, those are the only good works I recognize. Those are the good works that bless me. The things that you do because I have forgiven you. Not the things you do to try and earn my forgiveness. Those things are an insult to me. But the things you do out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, those things, those bless me. Because it shows you understand you can't earn my love. I gave it to you. And now you're just responding in gratitude. Those are the good works that bless the heart of God. So you can fast, you can pray, you can tithe like this Pharisee did. And those things can be filthy rags before God. Or they can be a blessing to him. It all depends on why you're doing them. If you believe that doing those things makes you righteous, that's an insult to God. But if you're doing those things because you believe he has made you righteous, God says, hey, that's a blessing to me. As this Pharisee stands in public, he's confident that God hears him because of his good works. However, because he trusts in himself for righteousness, he's really praying to himself, with himself, because the Lord looks at his good works as filthy rags. God's not impressed. Verse 13, here comes the contrast. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. So this tax collector feels so unworthy of a relationship with God, he's standing at a distance from the temple, and he won't even lift his eyes to heaven when he prays. He's like a child who is ashamed of something and can't even look mom or dad in the eyes. And it says, but he beat his breast. And this was a cultural sign of mourning or repentance, saying, this is the man's whole prayer. Underline this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. In the original language, as some of your Bibles will say, the literal translation is God be merciful to me, the sinner. Not God have mercy on me because I have sinned, but God be merciful, the ongoing tense to me, the sinner. It's who I am, I'm a sinner. I need your mercy now and going forward in my life. You see, this tax collector, he views himself as the sinner of sinners. Just as the apostle Paul would later call himself the chief of sinners, this man is showing that same heart, the heart that's just overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. There's no pretense here. This man has come to the place where he sees himself clearly for who he is. Do you notice he's not comparing himself to anybody else? He's not saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. What's happened in this man is that he has seen the holiness of God. He has looked in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit has illuminated for him who God is, and this man sees who God is, and he sees who 
he is, and he is overwhelmed by the contrast between the purity and holiness of God and the sinfulness of his own heart. He's not comparing himself to anyone else. He's comparing himself to God and he's saying, I'm awful. I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. So write this down. We notice that this tax collector owns his sin while the Pharisee doesn't even see his. He owns his sin while the Pharisee doesn't even see his. Tax collector doesn't blame his sin on anyone else. He doesn't say, sure, I've made some mistakes, but God, you don't know what my childhood was like. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what I've been through. Doesn't blame it on anything else in his life. Because the truth is, even if nothing bad ever happened to you and I, we would still choose to sin. Just ask Adam and Eve. They had perfection, and they still chose to sin, just like we would. We also notice that this man, he's not trying to negotiate with God. He doesn't promise anything about his future behavior. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, God, forgive me, and I'll never sin again. He doesn't even present a plan for for what he's going to do about the problem of sin in his life. And that's because when you really come to understand that you're a sinner, you understand that as long as you're in this body, you're going to sin again and again and again. Even though you will strive not to, even though you don't want to, it's going to happen. So this man cries out to God, but he doesn't say, I'll never sin again. He recognizes that, hey, as long as I'm in this body, uh, I'm going to sin again. And so any solution to his problem has to cover every wrong thing he's ever done, every wrong thing he's currently doing, and every wrong thing he's going to do in the future. His only hope is the mercy of God. So write this down. The tax collector recognizes he has nothing to offer God. He has nothing to offer God. But the good news is that this tax collector, this sinner, has arrived at the ground floor of the gospel. The elevator doors are open. He's reached the place where the grace of God is able to move in his life because the Lord, the great physician, cannot help the man or woman who denies that they're even sick. As long as you're saying, I don't need help, like this Pharisee. There's nothing God can do for you. But when you reach the place of understanding you're a sinner, God says, okay, now we can go to work. You won't believe what he'll do for the man or woman who will say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Write this down. We only have a relationship with the Father because Jesus has made us righteous. We only have a relationship with the Father because Jesus has made us righteous. And some of you will be familiar with James 5.16. It's a famous verse on prayer. It says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So the effective intense prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So the question is, who is righteous? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3 that without Jesus, there's none righteous. No, not one. The tax collector recognized this truth and confessed it freely before the Lord and God made him righteous because of this. We now live after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In order for us to be righteous, we have to recognize the glorious truth of 2 Corinthians 5, which says, for he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
We're made righteous through Jesus. It's the divine exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So who is the righteous man that James 5 is talking about? Who is the righteous woman whose fervent prayer avails much, accomplishes much? The answer is it's any one of us who looks to Jesus to be made righteous. And if your hope to be made righteous is Jesus, then you are the righteous man. You are the righteous woman. And Jesus wants you to know that your prayers are powerful. James 5 is not talking about really good Christians versus really bad Christians. It's talking about believers versus non-believers. And he's saying there's a real difference. God listens to the prayers of those who've been made righteous through his son Jesus. He listens to them in a completely different way than he listens to the prayers of those who have not been made righteous through Jesus. You're righteous through Jesus. He can come before the Father and pray with confidence. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, underline I tell you. And I wanted you to underline that because I really want you to grasp that this is Jesus speaking. This is God in the flesh, the one who's gonna judge every human being speaking. In John 5, Jesus said, for the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. So when Jesus says in verse 14, let me tell you, how God received the prayers of each of these men. We can trust what he's telling us and Jesus says in verse 14, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house, underlined justified, rather than the other, justified, just as if I'd never sinned, made clean, for, and then underline the rest of this verse, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is to add the phrase before God to this verse. Because that's what Jesus wants us to know. It it makes more sense if you read it. Everyone who exalts himself before God will be humbled. And he who humbles himself before God will be exalted. And I point that out because what Jesus is not saying is I want you to walk around looking like you hate yourself and constantly speak about how awful you are. That's not what Jesus is saying. The point of the parable is that we're only able to come before the Lord because Jesus has made us righteous. We're not able to come before God because we've made ourselves righteous. James 4, 6 tells us God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we're proud, when we're confident in our own goodness and this can really creep in we can find ourselves in the place without realizing it when we say you know I needed more grace when I was starting out as a believer but now I got some years in become more like Jesus and so now it's like 30% grace but you know 70% me and that's why I'm confident when I pray I know God hears me because I'm a good guy I'm a good girl listen it's all grace all the time It's all Jesus. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. When we come before God and say, hey, you you owe me, God. I've been living right, so you sort of owe me. The Bible tells us, hey, when, when we have that sort of attitude, God resists us. You see, he's the perfect loving father, so he can't give in. He can't give us what we want when we have a bad attitude about it. So when we say, do this for me, Lord, I deserve it. If he's a good father, he has to resist us. And how does he resist us? Well, Jesus tells us, everyone who exalts himself before God will be humbled. 
He resists us by humbling us. And here's the awful truth. Can't really be humbled without humiliation. It's just a horrible, horrible truth. You know, I wish I could take a pill for humility or go to a how to be humble seminar. But the tragic irony of humility is nobody can really write a book on how to do it because in so doing, they would cease to be humble themselves. So there's a real dearth, a real lack of resources on how to be humble because if you had the arrogance to write something about how to be humble, you would not be an authority on the subject. The only authority on the subject of humility is Jesus Christ and his example. And the sad truth is that most of the time in my life, I've only grown in humility by being humiliated. And I wonder how many of you are like me and if you were honest, you would share that some of the biggest lessons you've learned in life, in work, in relationships, have come at the cost of humiliation. You know, wouldn't it be great if we just woke up and said, you know what happened is I was just in the word and I just realized that I needed to change and, and, and I just changed. This is so good, it's so wonderful. But for most of us, there, were, there was a bit of a wreck. There was a bit of a crash. There was some debris. There was some fallout. And we changed because we were humiliated or we were left scarred by an incident. But those were the defining moments of our lives that God worked through. Very hard to be humbled without going through humiliation. Here's what I want you to know. The Lord, as we always say, is the perfect loving Father. And his goal for each of us, even this jerk of a Pharisee, his goal for you and I, even in our stubbornness and our pride, is to get each of us to the place where he can bless us, where he can exalt us and lift us up. What does he say? He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what he wants to do. He wants to lift us up. It's clear from the words of Jesus that the place of humility is the greatest place of blessing. The word says he gives grace to the humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And God wants us in that place. He wants to get us to that place. And so to get us there, sometimes he has to humble us along the way. Write this down. God's always working to get us to the place of humility so that he can bless us. He's always working to get us to the place of humility so that he can bless us. It's never God looking down on us and saying, I gotta humble you because I gotta put you in your place. I gotta teach you a lesson. No, it's the heavenly father who says, listen, I can't bless you when you got a bad attitude. I can't reward your wrong thinking. So I gotta get you to this place of humility so that I can bless you. And when I bless you, it won't result in you becoming more proud or more arrogant or having an even worse attitude. I gotta get you to that place of humility so that I can bless you. Now you may have picked up that Jesus said, he who humbles himself before God will be exalted. That's the best way. That's the better way. Far better to choose humility than humiliation. But sometimes we only respond to the former option, right? Man, I, like I said, I wish that I could choose humility far more of the time, but I'm not very good at that. But how do you give yourself the best chance of humbling yourself before God? How do you put the odds in your favor? I wanna suggest it has everything to do 
with communion. I want to suggest this is the primary reason for communion and why the Lord tells us to take it all the time. He gave us communion as a means to remember him and to not forget what he's done for us. You see, you cannot take communion without being reminded why Jesus' body had to be broken, why his blood had to be shed. And the answer, of course, is because God has been merciful to me, the sinner. At the table of communion, I can't hold on to my delusion that I have a relationship with God because I'm a good person. The elements that I hold in my hand, the body and the blood of Jesus, remind me that Jesus had to give his life for me because I could never make up for my sin against God. And on my own, all my righteous deeds are filthy rags before the Lord. And when I remember that, when I remember that I've received grace and mercy and kindness from God that I did not deserve, the only result can be humility, gratitude, thankfulness. I am left humbled by the love of God and the price he paid for me. And that humility causes me to respond to God by saying, here's my life. It's yours. Whatever you want to do with it, whatever you want it to be, I'm in. And when God has your life like that, when he has my life like that, the Bible tells us, man, you're going to do good works. They're going to flow out of your life and they're going to bless God because those good works aren't about you or I pretending to be good on our own. Rather, they're about the goodness of God in us, flowing from the inside out. So as quickly as I can, I'm, I'm going to wrap up with these quick points. I wanted to share some things that I think might be helpful to you and to me in establishing an effective prayer life. Most of us want to do that. And we don't read books about it because we're like, I know what it's going to say. It's going to say, you know, go for a walk for 30 minutes don't breathe and focus entirely on God and stay focused. You're like, ah, I can't do that. You know, we don't even pick up a book on prayer. We're like, I already know I can't do it. So I want to share some things that, that might be effective and helpful and practical and hopefully not discouraging. These are not things that I've mastered. These are things that I'm working on in my own life. And so the first thing is that a daily prayer time needs to be scheduled. It needs to be scheduled. You got to set yourself a time that you meet with God, even if it's for, for just five minutes every day or 10 minutes every day, whatever it is, you gotta have a time. And if you can't find a, a set aside time or sit down, then find something that you do every day that can be a trigger appointment with God. It could be as simple as the shower that you take every morning or evening. It could be as simple as your commute to work. Maybe you sit down and have a cup of coffee on the patio every day or, or in a favorite chair just take that time and say, every time I do that, that is my time with God. I'm going to do that. Have you ever noticed the amazing amount of things in life that just don't happen unless you schedule them? It's astounding. I'm reminded all the time that my cars will not maintain themselves. I actually have to make an appointment, make a plan to get my car into the shop to get it maintained. It's fascinating. But the same thing is true for prayer. Rarely does it just happen. I've never met a person who said, oh, Jeff, my prayer life has just exploded and I can't explain why. I've just been overwhelmed with the urge to pray. And so I don't plan anything. The thought just hits me all the time. You should pray right now. And I take 10 minutes and pray and I'm, I'm praying like four hours a day. I've never met that person. 
because it needs to be scheduled. We need to have an intentional plan to do it. Secondly, write this down, begin with praise. Begin with praise. Do you know what the most frequently given command in Scripture is? Even do not murder shows up maybe five times. The most frequently given command in Scripture is praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It shows up over 2,000 times. When it comes to prayer, I think praise and thanksgiving are really synonyms. They, they mean essentially the same thing. And when we focus on being thankful, it changes the way we think. It changes the way we perceive the world. It changes the way we view our lives. It changes the way we view God. Parents, do any of you not love it when your kids just come up to you and spontaneously say thank you? Man, thank you for all the things that you take us to, Dad. Thank you for the fun we got to have today. Thank you for dinner. That's the, oh man, that just warms your heart. Just makes you want to buy them stuff and give them stuff. You know why? It's because when we're thankful, we're able to appreciate what we've been given. And that actually makes us able to enjoy what we've been given on a much, much deeper level. You realize that? When we're thankful, we actually enjoy the thing we're thankful for more. And I love it when my kids are thankful because it means they're enjoying what we're doing or what they have on a much deeper level. They understand that they're enjoying a blessing and so they're being greatly blessed by that blessing. And that's what warms my heart is, is their gratitude is actually enabling them to enjoy it more. So begin your prayer times with praise and thanksgiving. It puts everything in proper perspective, everything. As you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you'll find story after story of God moving through the praises of his people. Crazy things like where there should have been soldiers going out, there are people going out praising God and God just shows up. Whenever his people begin to praise and thank him, he just shows up in a big way. And I believe that's because God moves through our faith. And our faith tends to explode when we begin to recall all that God's done for us and all that he's doing for us. When we meditate on the faithfulness of God, inevitably, our faith increases. And God can do more through our faith. What did Jesus tell his disciples about praying for their needs? He said, your father knows the things you have need of before you even ask him. He knows the list. We never have to think maybe he hasn't moved because I forgot to mention that one thing that one time. As though God's up there going, how am I supposed to know? You see, you can forget to ask God for all of your needs and he'll still take care of them. He'll still take care of them. But faith is never going to just happen. Faith will never just happen on its own. Faith is something you build in your life and one of the best ways to build it is by spending time every day thanking God for what he's done for us and who he is to us. And if you're wondering, what does it mean to praise God? Here's what it's not. I praise you, God. I praise you, God. I praise you, God. You know, when you come home and your wife is making a delicious meal, I don't say, I thank you, Charlene. I thank you, Charlene, for this meal. Praise Charlene. Gratitude to Charlene. She's like right there. She's right there. I can just... Talk to her, so praise to the Lord is just talking to him like he's actually there because he is. And it's saying, you know, Father, thank you that I have a place to live. Thank you that you take care of me. Thank you for this moment I have to just watch the sun come up and just breathe for a moment. Thank you for all these little ways that you find throughout the day 
just to remind me that you're with me so that I don't forget you. It's just, it's just talking to him. There, there's no code. There's no secret. It's conversational. Number three, pray the promise, not the problem. Pray the promise, not the problem. Don't pray, what am I going to eat tomorrow, Lord? Pray, thank you, Father, that your word promises you'll supply all my needs. You see, God knows our problems. We know our problems. Pray the promise. It'll build your faith. Pray the promises in Scripture. It'll build your faith. If you pray the problem, if you focus on the problem, it will tear down your faith. Stop going over the problem over and over again. Go over the promise over and over again. If you didn't get a copy of the uh, prayer promises sheet we handed out a few weeks ago, write on the back of the connection card that you want one. Put your email address on there and I'll send it to you this week. It's just a sheet the size of your outline with a whole bunch of verses on that you can just pray and you can begin to memorize. Number four, pray out loud. Pray out loud. Why? It's very simple. You get the benefit of speaking God's promises. They're coming out of your mouth and there's power in our speech. And when you speak them, you get the benefit of hearing God's promises from your own mouth. It's how Jesus prayed. Jesus said to the blind men, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Let it be done to you. Again, another one of those verses where like, that sounds prosperity gospel-ish, but it's Jesus. According to your faith, let it be done to you. And we know the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God moves through our faith and God builds our faith as we hear his word. What is the easiest way for you to hear the word of God? To speak it, to speak it yourself. You know, we generally believe what we speak out and hear over and over and over again. If you're always talking to your kids about how poor you are, about how you never have enough money, let me tell you a reality of how people work, how our minds work. Your kids will probably grow up to be poor because they'll grow up believing that's just the inevitable result. That's what we are. We are poor. What you say and what you hear over and over and over becomes the truth that you believe. And so what the Bible says is you need to make sure that what you're speaking and what you're hearing over and over again is really the truth, the truth of God's word. And it's never true that God has abandoned you. So you don't need to pray, God, feels like you've left me and you're not around anymore. That's not gonna help. What's gonna help is saying, Father, thank you. That your word says you never leave me, forsake me. You are with me even to the end of the age. You're always with me. Man, that's going to build your faith. Get control of your tongue. Get control of your speech and start confessing the word of God. Here's another great benefit. I don't know about you, but when I sit down to pray in my mind, I've got maybe one or two minutes before I'm like, look at the pattern of the fabric on this chair. This is, this is astonishing. And you're looking at your watch and you're like, okay, pray 10 minutes. That was pretty good, pretty good. When you pray out loud, your mind focuses so much better. I can't explain it. It's like your mind, the part that wants to wonder, is now occupied 
by having to put mental energy on, on speaking, on making your mouth talk. And so the percentage of your brain that's available to wander off and chase shiny objects is greatly decreased and you can focus much better. Go for a walk and do that. Find a spot in your home where you can do that. Pray the promises of God out loud. Get some three by five cards, write out some promises and take them to your steering wheel. Every time you hop in your car, just pray that thing three times. When you got it memorized, switch it out, put another card in, start praying that one and the new one, and you'll just be amazed what God will do in your thinking. Number five, thank God in advance for the answer. Thank him in advance for the answer. Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So thank God for providing everything you need even before you see it. Be praying things like, God, thank you that you've provided everything I need for tomorrow, everything I need for the next day. Why? Because he's promised to do it in his word. And so it's done, right? It's not a maybe, it's a promise. It's going to happen. So we can start thanking him for it right now because it is going to be done if it's in his word. His word is settled in heaven, it says. And as you do this, you're going to find your confidence in God growing as you give less and less room to doubt and fear in your mind. Number six, keep a record of God's faithfulness in your life. Keep a record of God's faithfulness in your life. You can call it journaling or whatever you want, but here's what I know. We're all experts at forgetting what God has done for us. Every single one of us. We need to have some sort of system that when we're struggling with faith in our life, we can go back and read and remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. Keep a record of all the times he's come through for you. That will become one of your most precious possessions. You know, when they're interviewing people for jobs, one of the things that you learn is that the best indication of a person's future performance is their prior performance. In other words, their track record up to today is the best indicator of what their track record's going to be going forward. That's generally a truth. So it builds our faith when in our own lives we're able to remember God's track record of faithfulness and we look back at everything in our lives and we say, you've always been faithful. So even though I have this doubt and this fear occupying my mind, the evidence, logic says, therefore, you will continue to be faithful. You've always been faithful, you always will be faithful. Gotta keep a record of that stuff. And then number seven, after praying, say only what God says. You guys know by this time, one of my favorite verses is Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they are in agreement? And you cannot ask God to move on your behalf, claim to be standing in faith and say, yes, Lord, thank you that you provide all of my needs. Then you come to church or talk to a friend and you just say, I'm going down. The ship's on fire. It's all going to hell, all of it, you know. But, uh, you know, at least Jesus loves me. You, you can't do that. You can't pray one way and then speak another way. You've got to agree with God, and in your speech, you've got to agree with God. You know, I love it when I bump into a person who's honest about what they're going through, but they have faith. And here's the difference. The person who doesn't have faith says, yeah, it's, it's all awful, and I don't really see an end in sight. It's just going to be awful forever from what I can see. But then there's the other person who will say, how are you doing? And they say, man, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Would you pray for me because this is a challenge in my life right now. 
I know God is going to take care of me. I know his word says he's going to be faithful. But I need some prayer to keep standing in faith like that. And their concern is not, is God going to come through? Is God going to take care of me? The concern of the person of faith is, man, can I stand in faith and honor God the way he needs to be honored? Because here's what I know. At the end of all this, I'm going to be left saying he's faithful. And what I want is I just want to be faithful to God myself during this process. I don't want to get to the end and say, man, God was faithful, but yet again, I was faithless. So pray for me that I would be as faithful to God as God is to me. That's important. Agree with God. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he really find faith on the earth? That's a big question. I've shared before that that faith is the currency of the kingdom. It's what honors God more than anything because faith reveals that we trust that God is who he says he is. So I want to challenge you this morning. Are you, am I, honoring God in the way we pray? Are we honoring God in the thoughts we think about how he's going to take care of us in the future? Is there faith in our lives? Is God going to find faith? And then back in verse 8, Jesus told us that our heavenly father would respond speedily. Some of you might have noticed that. I told you to underline it. And perhaps some of you were thinking, that's not my story. You know, we don't have time to do a whole other sermon on that subject. But I could, but I won't. So I'm just going to remind you of this. You know, everything God does for us, his children, is ultimately for our good. Everything God does for us, his children, is ultimately for our good. Why do I believe that? Because the Bible says so and because at this point in my life, I'm just convinced of the character of my Father in heaven. I'm I'm convinced he's good. I've seen too much of the goodness of God to say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd like to think I finally reached the place where I can say that's that's a settled issue. I'm going to mess up and I'm going to forget that every now and then. But hopefully, when I'm reminded, I'll recall that and go, oh man, what what was I doing? How could I forget so easily? It's the character of God. So where we don't have firm answers, this is a principle for the Christian life, where we don't know why, where we don't know what the future holds. You know what we fill in that gap with? We don't fill in that gap with doubt and fear and the worst case scenario. We fill in that gap with the character of our heavenly father. And we say, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why it hasn't happened yet. But here's what I do know. I have a father in heaven who loves me and everything he does is ultimately for my good. And that's enough for me right now. He loves us, he loves us. Do you have any idea how many married believers there are who are so thankful today that the Lord didn't answer a prayer from years ago to be married to someone else, to him or to her. Have you ever had that experience? You bump into someone you really liked when you were a teenager and you thought, man, God, I figured this out. They're they're the one. Let's get to it. You bump into them years later and you say, Lord, you're so good. You're so good. I don't know what I was looking at. Praise God for not answering my prayers. That's what the Lord does. He always does what is best for us. When we get to heaven and we're like, God, I got a list of prayers that you didn't answer or that you took too long to answer, God's gonna be like, just watch the tapes. Watch the tapes. And we're gonna be like, ooh, 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 ooh. That's enough, Lord. 
Everything you did was good. I get it. I trust you. You love me. Settled issue. Thank you for not answering that prayer. Thank you for delaying that prayer. Trust in the character of your heavenly father. Trust in the character of your heavenly father. It's a key to the Christian life. There's so much that we don't know, but we know that we have a Father in heaven who's good and who loves us. Trust that months from now, years from now, or even in eternity, one way or another, when you see the full picture, you too will say, Lord, thank you for doing what you knew was good and not what I thought was good. Trust that your heavenly Father loves you. Trust it. And then lastly, I want to encourage everyone today to take communion and just pray that prayer again. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, maybe you're struggling with a sin and you don't want to deal with it with God because you're thinking, well, I can't go before God if I don't have a plan or a resolution or, or some sort of covenant I can make with God. God, if you forgive me, I'll never do that again, but I feel like I might still do it again. You know what a good prayer is? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Just be merciful to me. I'm a mess in this area in my whole life. Be merciful to me. God hears that. He's looking at your heart. He's not looking for perfect words. He's looking for the simple cry of help from those who need him to move on their behalf. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you love us, Lord. You love us. And Father, this morning we stand before you confident in your character that time and time again you have shown yourself to be perfectly faithful perfectly good, consistently compassionate and kind. And Lord, my prayer is that each of us would say, I haven't seen everything, I don't have all the answers, but this I know, my heavenly Father is good, only ever good. And he loves me and everything he does is for my good. Father, may that be our confession this morning. And then for the rest of us, let me encourage you, take communion today. Take communion and be reminded that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He's the one we stand on. He's the one who keeps us in relationship with God. He's the one that makes us righteous. He is the one who causes the Father to hear our prayers. It's Jesus, 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 the rock of ages the constant one, the alpha, the omega. Not like us going up and down in, in faith and emotions. He's the constant. And our relationship with the Father is through Jesus, not through us, not through us. So come before the Father boldly. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. 
If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.